Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on? Not so much, Steve. I am looking forward to today's conversation. We have got a really good guest in store to talk about um, a topic that everybody deals with, which is email overload. And you know, I'm excited too, because we're going to go well beyond just email overload and dive into the world and process behind writing, interest, following, all that kind of stuff, and even throw in some running in there for our running nerds out there, because I know we have a lot of those. So before we dive into that, uh, just a reminder that we have started a Patreon which is basically a way to help uh, support the work that we do, including this podcast you're listening to. Um, We've decided that this is the model we're going to go after. That way we don't have to rely on crazy supplement sponsors and other things that we don't really use or really, you know, have belief in. And instead we're going to give you guys the opportunity to support us and then get all sorts of cool goodies in exchange, including things like a monthly book club that Brad and I are starting up and uh, other giveaways. And then we also have um, quarterly mastermind group and signed copies of our forthcoming books in there as well. All sorts of cool stuff. So check it out. The link will be in the show notes. But for those who don't want to go there, it's patreon.com slash the growth equation. Yeah, we really appreciate your support in helping us do what we do and um, not having to go the sponsorship model. Because as Steve said, just so many of the pitches we get for sponsorship while they can be quite good money, they're often from products and services that just fly in the face of what we stand for, which is evidence-based, no-nonsense, non-consumeristic performance, success, and well-being. So please support us. We appreciate the support. Um, We won't wait any longer, so we will now get into the conversation with Cal Newport. Cal is a computer scientist at MIT, And he is also the author of the best-selling books, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and most recently, the book that just came out this week, A World Without Email, which is about email, but it's really about how do you create processes that let you focus on what is meaningful and eliminate so much time and energy spent on the trivial And as Steve mentioned, we spend a lot of time not just on Cal's ideas, but also on Cal the person, Um, starting with his experiences as a pretty good high school athlete all the way up to where he is today. So it's a far-reaching conversation. I think you'll learn a lot. I hope you find it as fun and valuable as we did. So with that, here's Cal. Cal Newport, great to have you back on the Growth EQ podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, always a pleasure to chat with you guys. Yeah, we're really looking forward to uh, to going deep on your new book, which just came out yesterday, which we both loved, A World Without Email, and also just getting to know you a little bit more, the person behind A World Without Email and which of these principles really resonate with you in your own life, which do you find challenging and all that good stuff. 
But I actually wanted to start with a question from a Growth EQ uh, reader and longtime listener who knew that you were coming on the show today. And she told me to ask you if you're a robot. And I think what she means by this is oftentimes the Cal Newport that is presented to the world is just uber productive, on point, thinks 100% rationally, 0% emotionally. And she told me that she envisions you like plugging in and powering up and then unplugging and powering down at the end of the day. And I've gotten to know the Cal Newport kind of offstage, um, but she wanted to hear it from you yourself. So we're going to open up with uh, a question from a listener. Are you a robot? You know, obviously, I think social media is playing a role here. And I'm going to, I always connect everything to social media. Here's why I don't use social media, but one of the things that happens when you're, you're used to the people that you read about or listen to or watch when they have big social media presences is that it personalizes them. So I actually think what's going on here is that the way I am used to be standard for people who are writers or in the public sphere in the idea space is that you didn't really know much about the person other than like the stuff they produce. Like, oh, they have articles and, and books, and maybe you would see them interviewed during book launches and otherwise. You didn't know anything about it, right? Like no one knows anything about Malcolm Gladwell. If you were reading The Tipping Point, you're like, I don't know. I guess he lives in New York. You don't know anything about him, right? That was the old way. Today, we're used to this notion of like, well, if someone's in the public sphere, we're going to see their thoughts on everything. It's going to be on Twitter. It's going to be on, you know, I don't know, TikTok, Clubhouse, or whatever it is that that people are using these days. But you're going to hear their opinions on things. You're going to hear them reacting to things. You're going to hear their frustrations. Social media is very personalizing of people in the public sphere. So that's my theory, is that compared to that norm today, it's striking. It's like, well, I don't know much about Cal. I just see the stuff he produces, and I I don't see him talking about the world and making observations. And so you imagine I'm just sort of powered down in between my releases. But the reality is I'm actually just running around my house yelling at my too many kids. (laughs) You know, it's just not being documented. So that's my theory. So let's um, let's give listeners that gift then to let them get to know you a bit. So what were you like as a kid? Were you always um, a very methodical thinker? Were you one of these kids that really excelled in math right from the get-go? Uh, in, in let's just start maybe like, you know, middle school where we have some solid memories. Uh, what were you like? Uh, I was probably, I was not known as a strong math student. Uh, I was known more probably for writing and verbal skill. You know, I we, we did that program where you take the SATs in middle school and uh, I did really well on the verbal, you know. And and so when I, I don't know if you know about these CTY camps, they run at Johns Hopkins for uh, sort of students who score very high on the SATs when they're in middle school. Uh, but they have one for math and they have one for writing. And I was invited for the one for writing. I was not a super serious student. Uh, I had figured out at some point that colleges don't start looking at your transcript until high school. And so to me, it felt irrational to spend a lot of time studying to try to get good grades in junior high. It's like, what's the, I was like, literally who is looking at this? Uh, so I was not, I was not a very studious student in high school. I was probably known more for writing, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't the computers. I was in the computer programming. I, I, I had a gift for that. And so I, I went through all the computer science offerings my school had um, and so by the time I was a senior in high school, I was going to take computer science courses at Princeton University, which was nearby 
where my high school was because we were sort of out of it. So that, that was the thing I was, I became known for, I guess, is in the world of computer science, I was, you know, semi prodigious, I would say. So that's a fascinating insight there because you had to, you know, on the being aware that, you know, for colleges that junior high, you know, doesn't really matter from a grade standpoint. Like even to get to that point at at that age, I'd I'd imagine, you know, I certainly wasn't thinking about that or had any inclination on like what colleges or universities cared about at that point. So maybe take it a little step further back and like where that that kind of um you know future looking approach kind of um you know came about or came from cal you know i don't know how i found out about that particular information but I, but i think what was important is that i had a very independent childhood so i was one of four siblings and psychologically and emotionally speaking i was very non-problematic i just was sort of a happy kid had friends had a big group of friends i I got in i had an elementary school that i kept throughout all my schooling uh it was just sort of a happy non-problematic child so because i had plenty of other siblings that all had things they needed i was given a, a ton of autonomy i would say so i think that's probably what was more important there was not just that i discovered that the grades didn't matter but i didn't have a pressure of well uh we're looking at your grades and why aren't you getting A's? I remember being uh, feeling bad for some of my friends. We're like, oh, your parents are so they know your grades. Like that seems like that must be annoying or a lot of pressure. Where we just we had so much going on in our household uh, that I had a lot of independence, and I think that was probably the more important thing. So when I was in high school, for example, I ended up starting a company. So that was that was a that was sort of a formative experience for a while. So I was running a company in high school. We were I was. Uh, I would leave school to go drive, to go to business meetings, to try to sell things. It was kind of a problem for the high school because I had too many absences and they weren't really excused, but they, they kind of looked the other way because I was given a lot of autonomy in the high school as well. I was leaving to go to Princeton to take my courses. I just had a ton of independence and autonomy uh, throughout my childhood years. Uh, and I think that was really shaping. And maybe that's why I ended up being a, like a semi-independent thinker when it came to my writing later. But that by far must have been the most formative thing in my childhood is that I just always was in an environment where I could do my own thing and people would give me the flexibility to do that. That's fascinating. So you, it, it's almost like this freedom to explore and not have these trappings that I think a lot of uh, or these pressure trappings that I think a lot of, you know, young kids or teenagers have. Um, how How did you like utilize that? in a product, we'll call it a productive manner. I mean, because a lot of times like, you, you hear stories like this and you have this autonomy and freedom to explore and they might not use it to start a business. So where, where do you think that came from? Yeah, I don't know why, you know, sometimes it was productive, sometimes it was not. I don't know why I started a business. I think I was really interested in entrepreneurship. Probably also was my interest in computers. So right, this was the first dot-com boom. And we were surrounded by all these stories. I was reading as a kid. I would read. I was a huge reader. And I read a lot of business biographies, right? Bill Gates' biography, the the history of Apple Computer. Uh, yeah, I, I knew a lot about Larry Ellison at the time and what he was doing with Oracle. Uh, Jim Clark was of real interest to me who, who had made a lot on Silicon Graphics and was moving on to uh, Netscape pretty soon after that. And so I just thought those people were interesting. And it seemed like an interesting thing to do. 
like a tech company. This was a really exciting thing in the nineties to be in a tech company and to be working with computers and networks. And, and it just seemed, that just seemed exciting to me where I think this independence and thinking first began to actually really make a difference is that I went off to college and it was when I was in college that I got frustrated that there was no good student advice books because I had been reading all the business books, right? Because I, I, I ran a business as a teenager. I was reading business books. I was reading business advice books. I, I spent a ton of money at Barnes & Noble. Uh, and I used to, when I'd have doctor's appointments, I would on the way home stop at Barnes & Noble because I figured as long as I had an excused absence you know, to be at a doctor's appointment, how would they know if I added another 45 minutes? Uh, so I, I read a lot of business books, got to college, said, this is garbage, the books that are available about like how to be a good student. These are all stupid. Uh, so I'll go write my own and I'll, I'll take it more seriously. I'll write it like a business book. And that's what actually kicked off my writing career. So that's where I think the independence really paid off is that it was just my instinct when I said these student books are embarrassing and condescending and, and you know, I just want hard advice about how to study because I'm taking on a lot of student loan debt. My instinct was, okay, I can write that. And so that's, that's where that independence actually intersected the, the career trajectories that are still active today. And, and were you taking out debt to go to school at that point in undergrad? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think, I think I ended up paying for about half of it, which, um, which yeah. Added. So it's not like you, like there's this, you know, not like you're on full scholarship or you're, um, you're, you like have like silver platter school cause you're going to Princeton, which is an expensive school. But again, I'm not hearing you say like, oh, I felt pressured that I needed to get a good job at an investment bank so I could pay off my debt. You, you still were exploring. You make it sound so easy. So how old were you when you wrote that first book? And walk us through what that was like. Were you working with a literary agent? Did you just write the manuscript and self-publish it? Because if I think back, I too was very prodigious as a reader and I'd love to write. But it was so beyond the pale of my imagination to actually write a book as an undergrad. Um, so how did that go down? Yeah, it, you're right. There's, there's a couple more pieces to this story. Though, though I should clarify, I took computer science classes at Princeton when I was in high school because I lived near Princeton. But I went to college at Dartmouth, which is up Got in it. Uh, New York. Right. Um, you're right. So th- th- that's a good question. So I I wrote in college, right? So when, when I first got to college, I... Uh, the thing I was doing my freshman year is I was rowing crew. I had been a a middle distance sprinter uh, in high school and I was tall and of the right weight that if I cut weight, I could, I could make the, the, the lightweight team. And it turned out I was pretty good at rowing. So actually what I was, when I first got to Dartmouth, I was doing, I was like, what's, what's the preppiest, widest thing I could possibly, you know, end up doing. (laughs) It was probably rowing crew for Dartmouth college. Uh, So I was like, really, that was great. I was really serious on that. And I was on the first boat and, and I had an aptitude for it. And then, I developed a congenial. Uh, what did you run? Sorry to interject. We've got you know we have a lot of um, our our podcast is a mix of like entrepreneurs and business people and creatives, but we also have a lot of athletes that tune in. So you said middle distance. Were you like an eight hundred runner? I was a four hundred runner. I'm a little nervous because I know Steve is here who like legitimately runs. So <laughs> what'd you run? So I I was not a great four hundred meter runner uh, writ large, but I I could run like a low fifty three basically right so uh i'm not a not um not impressive but but for for our for our high school it was fine um faster than me so for those people again like the 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 you don't get to know cal through social media like i would have never known that you had this like whole side gig is and that's 
That is a better than average high school athlete. Yeah, no, I so I was a, I was a varsity athlete. So I was our our number. I was our yeah. So I was a varsity athlete starting in in my sophomore year. I was our uh, uh, lead four hundred runner until we had this incredible. Uh, talk about genetic gifts. Uh, this, this is an aside, but there's this small scrawny kid. Like at least I was, uh, I'm six, two. I have long legs. I have good, the right, it kind of makes sense. Like I could be a decent, you know, 400 meter runner at that, at that level. This scrawny small kid uh, came up named Matt and just had this gift from God could run sub 50, 400s. Um, and nothing about, about him. It's not like he trained more. He didn't have the right build for it. He just had uh, these legs that he could just, he could hit. Uh, he still has the school record. Just he could do 40, 49 second 400s. It was crazy. Uh, I still remember that first race where he just came around the corner, passed me. Anyways, so yeah, so I went to the, because I'm so I'm a four hundred runner and tall and was the right weight. So they 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 basically uh, dragooned me onto a crew team. I had no idea what this was, right? I mean, again, uh, from some uh, uh, public school in New Jersey, I have no idea what crew is. So I was rowing. I loved it. I was really into it. All my friends there. We we traveled all around to do crew races. It was. Uh, we, you know, we'd fly down to Georgia to train in the spring before the river would thaw in Dartmouth. Uh, but then I got a heart condition, just random bad luck, congenital heart condition that, uh, hit me and basically I couldn't row. Right. So that was like, that was the end of that. And, you know, I had to take beta blockers to control it, which reduces your max heart rate by about 20%. You can't do high, uh, high VO2 <laughs> demanding sports like crew with a 20% reduced heart rate. I just, you can just watch the ERG numbers just drop and there so I, it was like so i couldn't do it anymore uh so i started writing so i was writing in college i got really involved in the humor magazine so ivy league schools care a lot about humor magazines because it used to be this was the pipeline to all of the the sitcoms and late night shows all these writers came out of the ivy league humor magazines so i was writing humor and i was writing a column for the newspaper and i ended up actually the editor of the humor magazine at dartmouth uh, by the time i graduated so i was writing quite a bit before I uh, decided to pull the trigger on writing a book. And so it was right, right before I turned 21, I signed with our now mutual agent, Lori. I signed with her uh, right before I turned 21 and we sold the book that summer and I, I wrote it that fall. So that was right before my senior year. There is, well, first off, Cal, I'm so glad you brought up uh, that you ran the 400 in high school. You probably just gained a bunch of uh, running nerd followers because it, it doesn't matter what time you, you ran, but 53 is a very solid uh, varsity high school time. So props for that. But runners just love hearing that other people actually took uh, took part in our little sport. So um, <laughs> that was great. I, I'm really curious. There's so much to unpack in there. And I'm going to, since I'm the know the athlete here i'm gonna linger on this a little bit so what was it like going into crew and rowing which for those who don't know is like a very very demanding and hard sport to train at i mean that it that's not just like oh i'm gonna you know uh go whatever you know play pickup basketball or throw some baseballs around like crew is it is demanding, especially if you're on that first boat. Like, what was that transition like and to, like, take on that load while doing all these other things that you were doing in college? I don't I loved it for some reason. Um, I don't know. I liked the, the camaraderie. Like, I had all these friends and we were, you know, we were sitting together at the dining hall with our with our crew jackets on. And uh, we'd be, you know, being in the erg room or the tanks. It, it all seemed novel to me. Because it really is like a 
physically novel thing. You're in these little boats on a river. I mean, it just seemed coming from where I was coming from in my mind. I was like, I guess this is the cliche of what it must be like to go to a small Ivy league school that you're on like a tree lined river. And there's like a coxswain in the boat. Who's like yelling at you. And, and you're, you're, you have these oars and um, I really enjoyed it. And I, I think the fact I was just naturally good at it. So, so basically they put me on an erg and I pulled a good time. So it was also just really satisfying because I was, uh, so at Dartmouth, the crew team is the, it's heavily recruited, right? So you know, most of the, the rowers in the, the freshman first boat are going to be the recruits getting prepared for the varsity. And so I was able to pull times that was, you know, in the midst of the recruits. And so it was just all gravy as far as I was concerned. Uh, I really did like it. And for what running the 400 would make me throw up because one of the things I hated about the 400 is I would always, I have, I would always throw up after I ran it, but crew wouldn't make me for whatever reason, doing like a 2k on the erg won it. So relatively speaking, I was like, oh, this is awesome. It's a sport where you don't, <laughs> you don't have to throw up uh, every time every time that you compete. So, uh, I mean, I was really sad. It was really a bummer when I had to sort of just suddenly, though long-term, probably not a bummer, right? Because uh, if I had just stayed on the crew team, it eats up all your time. I mean, I wouldn't have written the books. I wouldn't have become a writer. I mean, I think it, it was for the best in the long-term, but it made the rest yeah, of my time. But acutely, acutely... Yeah, and I want I wanted to to jump in and ask you about that because acutely that must have been really hard because what I'm hearing you say is that crew became a pretty significant part of your identity, right? The people that you hang out with, the ego of wearing that jacket, and I don't say ego in a bad way. I'm better than you, but just ego like this is who I am. I am a rower. I'm in the first boat. These are my people. Did you go through a period where you were in a really tough spot when you first got that news, or? Um, were you able to accept it pretty swiftly and move on? Because I, I, I mean, I'm sure that we could talk about this topic forever and I don't want to, but I am kind of curious because you said, I got the news and then I just decided I'm going to get more into writing. What, 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 what bridged that transition, if anything? Well, it was a, it was a, a double, a two wave to use a sort of inappropriate contemporary metaphor. It's like two waves of, of toughness. So the first wave was you know, like immediately following where, uh, I was medically cleared to row as long as I took this medication, but the medication, you could just quantify your splits drop. And I left, I was out of the first boat and moved down into the second boat. And that was really painful because you knew I'm capable of doing much more, but you literally can't, like your heart can't pump enough, uh, enough blood. So when I decided, okay, I'm not going to do crew anymore. Um, there was some relief in it. I was like, okay, well, I, I can move on to other things. I was pretty excited about it. The, the second wave of toughness though was, you know, kids, College selection in the U.S. is really, I think, kind of stupid. We let 17-year-olds just decide arbitrarily where they should go to school. I had just gone on a tour of Dartmouth with some friends and was like, oh, this place seems cool. I'll just apply there early and win. It was probably not the right school for me to go to because, you know, Dartmouth is where Chris Miller uh, was a Dartmouth alum who went on to the National Review and then wrote the story on which Animal House was based. So Animal House is based on this massive frat scene at Dartmouth because it's in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing to do. So we get to my sophomore year. Uh, I'm no longer rowing crew, but I'm like, okay, it's okay. I've gotten past that. And actually some of my crew friends I made in the second boat also left crew. And I was, you know, we were rooming together. Then there was fraternity rush. I was like, what is this? What do we do? Uh, right. You know? Okay. So I was like, all right, let me, let me do this, you know, bidding thing. Right. Very Dartmouthy. And got, you know, okay, here's me and my friends. Okay. We got accepted in this frat and, and I go to the first day of the, whatever they call it, the hazing or something. 
And I quit. I was like, this is, this is crazy. You know, it's like these hard hats, like we're going to, Hey pukes, you're going to, whatever, we're going to make you do all this, whatever. And it just was completely antithetical to anything I was interested in. I was like, I don't want to be in a frat. That was actually harder to be at Dartmouth and to not be in a fraternity as a guy. There's a couple alternatives. You could be in like the outdoors club or a couple things that were basically pseudo frats, but to just be unaffiliated and not, that was, I say way harder. That was by far the most difficult thing. I probably should not have gone to Dartmouth, but I'm just a 17 year old. It was like, I met some cool people during a visit. But I had no, I probably should have gone to a school that was urban based. I think I probably would have thrived more having like more exposure to the arts and ideas. Um, that was much harder once everyone was in a fraternity and I wasn't. So in Cal's world now, knowing what you know, and I agree, working in the collegiate world, it's kind of crazy how um, how it works. But what would what would your advice be to give to, you know, a 17 year old kid now picking universities or is there a better system that you think would uh help people uh make that decision that you know in a way that was better than you did i guess i mean honestly honestly if we're going to be like really maximizing you know if we're just gonna be really logical about this most people should be going to their state university um unless they can get into a a very small number of elite schools that's going to give them a non-trivial edge over their state university. I think we probably over-prioritize the notion of um, fit and environment. And I sort of like the idea of going to this school that's over here because it it generates a lot of debt that I think is unnecessary. So I, I now look back and have more of a hard line thing, which is like, go to your state school unless, you know, you're really interested in politics and can get into Georgetown. Okay. Go to Georgetown. If you can get into Harvard, go to Harvard because that's going to open up doors that, that, that your state school uh, wouldn't, but don't go to probably like a random small liberal arts school in a state halfway across the country that costs twice as much as your state school um, without a better reputation. So I, I, we probably overfit. And this is just me probably remembering my own situation of, Oh, the mountains look pretty. And I met three guys that were chill. Great. Let me go here for the next four years. Like 17 year olds are idiots. So um I, that's how I think about it now is like, you should be going to your state school. It should be more of a, think of it more as a, not transactional, um, unless you can get into a very good school and maybe that's too transactional. Um, my wife doesn't fully agree with me on this type of thinking, but (laughs) kind of a, a hard line, probably like a, more of a hard ass on this type of thing. Love it. No, as, as someone who, again, recruits in the college world and, sees uh why people and how people make decisions it still blows my mind sometimes why you know how people are picking their universities on again same things that you said oh the the campus looked nice or i met this random senior who's going to be gone when when i'm there and you know that's where i'm going so it's kind of mind-blowing so let's get let's get back to your story a little bit although i love that tangent so You've gone through crew, you've gone through decided, you know, to try a fraternity and then it wasn't for you. One of the, you know, themes I'm noticing here is you're really good at at following your interests and then pivoting or being able to to move on if that, you know, that fit isn't there. Is that something that you've you've always had or something that, you know, you've kind of, um, you know, trained or developed over time, do you think? You know, by the time I got to college, what I remember is that I had a, a real sense of impatience. Like, I, for whatever reason, I had this idea that there's things I could be doing that are going to be important, right? I had a lot of belief in myself. 
And I, especially after I opted out of the frats, I remember thinking, I'm just, this is like a holding pattern. Uh, I want to be five years farther down in my career. Like I know I'm building the skills now, but I want, I want to have books out. I want to be whatever it was I wanted to do. I remember feeling impatient. Like I, I got to be finding something to do. I need projects. So I had this real energy that try to do things and to try to find openings where I could actually like make a move and start to gain some traction. And so I was really working on the, working on my writing. I was really working on my computer. I was getting pretty involved in computer science research. Um, the pivot, the writing felt pretty natural. And then I went pretty hardcore into that. Uh, I began to get pretty hardcore in my CS classes as well, because I had that background. I've been known as sort of that semi-prodigious CS student. So I said, okay, let me take that more seriously. Uh, so the, that CS is computer science for listeners that don't know. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I should clarify computer science. Yeah, okay, just making sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, I could see it as a pivot, but I could also see it as just the initiation of me taking things seriously. Because again, in high school, as I mentioned, like I did random, I, I had the, I ran track, I did a company, but I wasn't a super great student. I wasn't super organized. Uh, and then after I left crew is when I, I kind of got my act together. So maybe it's more of an initiation than a pivot. So it's after I left crew, for example, that I did all of the self-experimentation on how to study that ended up being the foundation of my book, how to become a straight A student. I, I did all that experimentation after my freshman year. And that's what turned me into a 4.0 student for the rest of my college experience. And that was very profound for me, this idea of, oh, my grades are much better than they were last quarter. And the only thing that changed is my strategies. And that gave me a lot of confidence too, that, that you know, uh, if you're thoughtful and intentional and think through think through your systems and try to find inefficiencies. So maybe that's the right way to see it. After my freshman year, I got serious about pursuing things in a way that before I was just sort of doing things to caught my attention. And then I'm hearing, then you get on this parallel track, one road, computer science, the other road, writing, that to this day, those have been the two roads that you've traveled and, and spent the most time on, yeah? Yeah, so I've stuck with it, right? This diligence. Uh, once I settled in those two paths, I just doggedly stuck with them. And I, yeah, so it's been that way since I was 19 years old, so about 20 years now, I've just been doing those two things. This is something that would make our um, our mutual friend and your neighbor over in D.C., uh, Dave Epstein, really proud because, and it's something that I've talked a lot about with, well, everyone here, Cal, Steve, and Dave, um, that grit is secondary to fit. So you got to try out a bunch of stuff. You kind of have to become yourself. And there, grit's not great because if you would have had grit is a rower, you might have said, you know, screw it, even though I have this heart condition, even though I'm going to be off the boat, maybe I'll transition and be a coxswain. Or maybe I'll just row on the third boat and kind of be like a Rudy figure and a real leader on the team from the back. And that would have been really gritty. But you didn't because you're like, oh, this isn't the right fit for me. And then once you land in something that is the right fit, that's where grip becomes really important. And I think that people tend to look at these concepts as polar opposites, like you either have grit or you don't, or you're constantly switching or you're not. And I think wisdom is constantly switching until you find the thing that makes sense. And then you have that dogged persistence. Um, so it's just neat to see some of these concepts that are more esoteric become really concrete and intangible in stories like yours. So you you start writing these books and most people... I'm going to go out on a limb and say no Cal Newport for deep work, digital minimalism, and soon to be a world without email. But you've got a whole canon of other books. 
So tell us about that process of publishing that first book on how to be a straight A student. Um, what did that look like? Uh, so what I did was I talked to a family connection in the industry. And it, this was the, the smartest decision I made and something I always recommend to people. So a family friend was a, an agent. And I said, look, I, I'm, I'm not pitching you on me. Um, all I want is information, right? How does this world work? And what would someone like me have to do in my situation, my age? What would I have to do to get a book published? And I got the information that was matched reality as opposed to what I, I saw other ambitious kids at Dartmouth and other places who had the same mindset, like, I'm going to write a book or this or that. But they wrote their own script about how to do that. They're like, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to write a thousand words a day. I want to do whatever. They, they didn't confront the reality of what would actually be required for a 21 year old to get a book deal. So I got that information and built a game plan off of it. And she told me, uh, they're going to be worried about your writing quality. Uh, it's going to be helpful if you have written for other publications on these topics. If you already have the ideas largely worked out, that will also help. It needs to be a book that is in the a space that makes sense for you to be writing. So it has to be aimed at students, probably, if you're going to break in at such a young age. And I took all that advice to heart, and I just systematically went out and began getting these rinky-dink commissions, article commissions, mainly from web, like online-based magazines to write about students and student advice. I took one of those commissions, again, it's like a rinky-dink commission, but using that as my main tool, I went and did all of the research required for my first book. Right, because I could. Uh, my first book was called "How to Win at College," and and the the gimmick was I, I interviewed a bunch of Rhodes Scholars uh, about their college experience, and then extracted this this pithy advice. So I interviewed them all for this article. Way more people than I needed to talk to for this uh, article for an online magazine. So that by the time I was pitching Lori, or uh, my agent and Brad's agent, um, on this particular idea, I was like, okay, I've done all the work. I'm like, first of all, I'm a writer. I'm the editor of this magazine. I'm a columnist for this like relatively well-respected college newspaper. I can, and I've been writing on this topic for magazines. I can send you all those articles. Also, I've done all the research for the book so I can show you the annotated table of contents, right? So you know exactly what you're going to get. It was all about undermining the fears that someone would have about signing a 21-year-old to write a book. And everything I did was evidence-based to undermine that fear and, and that worked. And then the way I found Lori is that my idea for this book was I want to write a college book like a business book because the existing college books were condescending and was all about having fun and, and, and being cool. And I was like, no, 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 students take themselves seriously. Let's, like, let's write a no-nonsense book, like do this, do this, do this. And so I had a particular business book in mind. It was called How to Become CEO. And it was a book of pithy, counterintuitive advice, 50 rules. It was by a, a writer named Jeff Fox. And I was like, I want to do that. And I'd come across it in my entrepreneur days. Like, I want to do that format because it would be easier for me to write. I'm a new writer. It's short, contrarian. I'm good at contrarian ideas. And so I looked up uh, who, who was the uh, agent that worked on that book. And it was Lori. Or it might have been that she was the editor and then she had become an agent. I think that was actually what it was. And so I just went straight to Lori and said, you saw Jeff Fox, you, you published Jeff Fox, you understand Jeff Fox. I want to do Jeff Fox, but for college kids, right? So everything was aimed to, to maximize success by minimizing obstacles. And so, you know, Lori made me send her all of the writing because she was rightfully worried about a 21-year-old. And after I convinced her I could write and I had ideas and, you know, um, it all just rolled from there. And then she went off and she sold it and we, uh, we rocked and rolled. That's such a neat story. And then you've been writing and working with Lori ever since. And for those that aren't in the publishing world, a, a literary agent 
Um, well, it can be multiple things, but the one that Cal's speaking of, Lori, is really like a coach. So it's just neat too that it's like a coach taking on a young player before they're proven, and then seeing that young that young player come to fruition. Um, so you write that book, you keep writing some books for students. Then your first, I'm going to call it more mainstream book, was so good they can't ignore you. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. 2012. And then that book, you tell us. But from where I sit, that book did fine. Like it did well, but it wasn't like a you know a game changing book in the conversation. And then deep work comes out, and it just introduces completely new language to anyone in this kind of business, personal growth, productivity space. What was that like for you going from, you know, pounding the stone, writing, writing success, but nothing major to then having a book that I would call like a smash book? Uh, it, it wasn't as sudden as, as one would maybe hope or expect. I mean, so the, the backup slightly, I, I, I wrote how to win a college in at Dar- Dartmouth before I left Dartmouth, I sold the next book, how to become a straight A student, which I wrote right after. And it came out my first year of grad school. So I, I wrote these two student books real quick. Now I'm at MIT. Now I'm in grad school. This will be 2006 at this point after uh, the second book came out. It was in 2006 that I set my sights on, I want to be publishing hardcover idea books. No one was going to publish a hardcover idea book for me in 2006, but I started working on that systematically starting in 2006. I, I began taking on article commissions that were more in that space. I began to deconstruct uh, I focused in particular on, on a few writers from the New Yorker and New York Times magazine. I would deconstruct their articles and uh, then take a commission from an online magazine to practice particular narrative or structural skills I had seen them do. I wrote a third book called How to Become a High School Superstar. But if you look at that book, it's it's written in the style of Malcolm Gladwell. It was a training book. So I was like selling a book aimed at students, but I changed the format over to that book gets into big ideas and science and contrarian thinking. And, and that was, you know, all part of this plan that didn't come into fruition until 2012 when I finally got a, uh, my first hardcover idea book. But here's the thing about that is so, so that book so good. They can't ignore you. It was real exciting. I was, uh, finishing grad school, starting my postdoc and this idea that follow your passion was bad advice. It hit a nerve. There was a bit of a, a, a bidding war and I got, you know, a $200,000 advance for this book. And I was like, my, you know, I'm I'm a grad student on a thirty thousand dollar year stipend, so I'm like, this is great, like this is gonna this is gonna change everything, um, but it 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 didn't blow up when it came out, you know, it it sort of came, didn't really you know started slow, just sort of was sitting around, right? Uh, it wasn't not selling, so they they kept it in hardcover. So when I turned around and said, okay, I want to sell uh, deep work, they paid me less. Right. They're like, okay, well, fine. This seems like a good idea, but you know, we're going to pay you less than we, when we paid you before. Um, so deep work comes out and that's 2016 at this point. I took a break because I had a bunch of kids in there. Um, deep work comes out and it's not a blockbuster, you know? I mean, I, I think it was, my blog was big enough that I could have like just enough pre-orders that it sort of is on like the wall street journal list for a week or something because the wall street journal list is non-writers should know that the, the wall street journal list is is book scan right just how many books did you move or it's the new york times list is it's more complicated it's it's uh a it's editorial they have to select books and it, it samples sales from indie bookstores anyway you can't just get on the new york times list as easily by just saying i i sold this many books and that was it and it was felt like a disappointment i remember having frustrated conversations with Lori 
where I'm like, they're not even stocking this in like some Barnes and Nobles. Like, I have family members like going to the store and they can't even just, they can't even find it, you know? And I remember her saying something like, well, um, basically numbers speak, <laughs> you know, like so, so I felt like they didn't even care about deep work, uh, publicity. I, I didn't do much for it. Right. Um, and then it just slow burned and it's weird. There was no deep work has never, it has never had a week where it sold a ton of copies. It's never outside of that initial week of peeking onto a bestseller list, never been on a bestseller list, but is outsold like most books of that era. I mean, it sold a huge number of copies and continues to sell more today than it sold, you know, four years ago or something like that. So it was a weird experience because it was like being the frogs in the pot where the water keeps getting turned up. You know, at some point when I went to sell digital minimalism and, and world without email, the publishing companies were like, we will give you a, a dump truck full of money, right? I guess that was the point where I realized, oh, this book had become very successful, but it never, I, I, it wasn't a huge launch. It wasn't a huge bestseller. It wasn't, it just sort of, everyone kept talking about it. And like the, the quintessential word of mouth book. Yeah. It's never had a huge week. We've had the same exact experience with peak performance, like to a T. So that book never hit the New York Times bestseller list. It hit the Amazon top 10 list in December, but it came out in June. So it was a super slow burn. And what happened there was um, it was like the deal of the day on Audible on Cyber Monday. So tons of people bought it on Audible. And then the following week, it was, you know, being talked about. So people started buying the hardcover in a total slow burn. And, you know, our most recent books that we both have coming out over the next year, the advances were significantly higher than our second book that we did together, The Passion Paradox, simply because peak performance to this day just continues to sell week over week, never has a huge week, but it never has a bad week. Um, so yeah, that's a very resonant story. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I find this fascinating because it's it's very similar in some ways, but it's, you know, Cal, you come across as, you know, you, you plan this stuff out, you're very deliberate and intentional, you're not going to get pigeonholed by your early books and going to transition and it's all, you know, there, there seems like a thought process and plan behind it. And then you go through these like highs and lows of books that do fairly well, but maybe not what you need. And then your advance goes down. I'm just curious, like, and then deep work, which, as we just said, like slow burn. How how did you find yourself riding those highs and lows? And then as a planner, did you like how did you deal with that? Or how did your your kind of plans or your intentions change as you got this like feedback and information coming back at you. Yeah. I mean, things were simpler. I think when uh, I didn't have to worry too much about things selling. Right. I mean, I I just would, the intersection of my writing career and my other career was smaller back when, when really all it was is like, Oh, I also put aside time regularly to write, you know, like I'm writing deep work while I'm, trying to get tenure at Georgetown, but writing deep work, it's like, you know, I have a, I'm a serious amateur bike racer or, um, you know, I'm really into singing with a choir. It's like, yeah, I I put aside regular time to do this thing on the side. Um, and then post deep work that, that changed because now there was a ton of other things coming at me. There was a a book publicity became a, a thing I actually had to do where it used to be so nice. It would be like, you do a few interviews 
and that would kind of be a book launch. It was great. You do like some radio interviews and and, and a little bit later you do some podcast interviews and th- th- there might be a couple articles written um, and you would barely notice like it wasn't a big deal. Whereas, you know, now, now it can take a lot of time. Uh, I don't know. I think the ups and downs were hard. I think I, I like so good. I thought this was it. And then it didn't break out though. I should say, by the way, the happy ending to the so good, they can't ignore you story is like, it's still in hardcover. It made back the $200,000 advance. It still sells well and generates a good amount of money. So like it ended up being a success. It just, everything I write takes years, which I don't know if, if that's, if that's good or bad. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the ups and downs are rough. Uh, yeah, it, it, be, it can be kind of rough. Like I, I, This is like a really selfish thing to say. I was like, it would be nice one day to have a book that actually just sells, that just does really well from day one. <laughs> like, a, Wouldn't that be nice? I don't know. Just to have a book where it's like, oh, it was a big hit. And for the first two months, it was on the bestseller list and everyone loved it. I've never done that. And when, when, I, when we see mutual friends who, who do it, I'm like, that must be nice, you know? I have to go instead. Be like, I, I hate the disappointing conversations with the publisher of like, well, yes, yeah, sales are going down and they're trying to put on a brave face. And I'm, and I have to be like, look, just give it three years. And it'll catch up. It's like, what it, it would be nice. Um, but, but just to go back to what you said about being systematic, I actually have my notebooks. I was looking at them recently from the period that I decided to write so good. They can't ignore you. And it was very systematic because I was then very well known for my student work. At that point, I had published three student books. I, my, my blog, Study Hacks, was focused on students and it was very popular. And my notebooks are making it clear from this period that, all right, I'm a very well-established figure. I could really probably own the space of really sharp, really smart thinking and advice for students. Like, this is my space. I'm doing really well in there now. And this could be mine. Right. And I could, I could build on this and I have all of this tortured back and forth in my notebook about, but I, I want to write this book about passion. I think I need to get broader, uh, being the king of student advice space in the best case scenario. I just don't know if I'm going to be that happy with that, especially as I leave being a student. And I had all this tortured back and forth where I finally decided, like, I think I need to expand. It was very systematic. I need to expand out of the student space. And I had a very systematic strategy on my blog at that time where I, I, I introduced a strict 50-50 policy. It's like, okay, how am I going to try? I have a whole audience of people who are here for the student stuff. And I went to a strict 50-50 policy. Student, passion, student, passion. And I just started interleaving the stuff that was in So Good They Can't Ignore You evenly with the student stuff I was already doing to just sort of bring my audience along into thinking about these new topics. And I very systematically did that so that by the time I write, wrote so good, they can't ignore you. I had transitioned my audience away from being just students looking for student advice to people who are interested in career advice. So it was, uh, that was incredibly systematic. And then the other systematic change I made after deep work was I'm a computer science professor. I can't just keep writing books that have nothing to do with computer science. I need to bring these two worlds together. So starting with how I presented myself while promoting digital minimalism, I said, I am now a technologist who writes about the impact of tech on society. And that's when I began doing you know, articles for major publications, et cetera, about tech and, and culture and society. I said, I need to lean into the fact I'm a computer science professor. I can't be a computer science professor also writing about career advice or something like this. And so that was the second very systematic career I made. So deep work, minimalism, and a world without email now I'll really fit with this picture of I'm a, a tenured professor in technology who writes about technology for a public audience. And that made a big difference because when it came time to promote digital minimalism, I made that shift in my, in my uh, presentation and suddenly I could get ser- I got a lot of serious press, you know, then I could get covered 
uh, in the New Yorker. Then I could get covered in the New York Times because that made sense to that group of, of, of reporters, this idea of, oh, it's a professor. They understood the credentialing. Oh, you're an MIT guy who's writing about the, stu- the public impact of the stuff that you're studying. So I, I just tell those stories to try to emphasize the, the systematic nature with which I come back and think through uh, how my writing career evolves. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. And really, you know, it resonates with uh, both Brad and myself, because we've had those conversations as well. Because, you know, as you know, I come from a very hardcore running background, Brad got his start in the kind of exercise world. And both of our, our recent books and then our upcoming forthcoming books, you know, venture away from that as well. And we've had these conversations on, okay, how how do you take this audience who knows and follows you uh, for this, you know, this work over here and then gradually bring them along with you and not not have it be like, hey, why did we go from, you know, here's five tips to run your best 5K to uh, here's here's how to, uh, you know, live your life or here's what passion is or whatever have you. How did you so, how, what was your main what was the main thing that finally convinced you? you both when you're thinking about going from peak to passion, but it's a huge jump, right? That's like me going from the student book to the, to the, the so good. What was ultimately the thing that, that, uh, that you and Brad landed on about, okay, this is why we're doing it. I, so I, so I think that for me, it was simple. So I got into writing, just writing for whoever I could. But my interest in listeners that are diehard athletes, I hope this doesn't preclude you from buying any of my future books. But my interest was never really like exercise science or sport. You can look back at the articles I was writing for men's fitness, and they were all about like controlling, like trying to manage your willpower in self-compassion versus self-discipline, in like the fresh start effect on new behaviors and habit change. And my editor at men's fitness basically is like this stuff is way too highbrow. Either write about like how to get bigger biceps muscles or go take your writing somewhere else. It's good, but it's not what our readership wants. And that's when I kind of almost like had the guts to be like, wait a minute, like I can start to write for more of a general audience. And then for me, it's so simple because I do as a armchair athlete, I think that sport is such a beautiful little like microcosm for life. And it's very condensed and compact and there are rules and there are highs and there are lows and there's community and there's vulnerability and there's all the things that I write about outside of sport in sport. So then it just got easier to tie the two together, particularly at a publication like Outside that is a more kind of um, cultural publication while still focused on health and fitness. I think, Steve, you've probably had a harder transition since your background is much more like you are an expert on sport. Yeah, I mean, I I would say so. I mean, my background is, I mean, my education is in exercise science and my uh, expertise is in in coaching that and understanding that scientific aspect. And that, you know, in my early work was all in the exercise science running world. That's where my first book was The Science of Running. Uh, My blog was entirely running in deep, like going down the, the rabbit hole of the the minutia around uh, the physiology of running. But, you know, as I got into like coaching, I quickly realized that what I thought was important in the terms of 
you know, oh, to get faster and to coach people better, it's all about like the training and stuff, which yeah, it matters. But what really interested me is is that the lessons and the values that we could take away from a, a sport, whether it be running or something else, um, that translate into other aspects of of our uh, your life and kind of going then that was that transition from running to peak performance i would say is okay how do we get these lessons that are you know very well established in the exercise science slash endurance sport world and translate them to other aspects of your life and then from there to you know my the passion paradox or my next work on toughness it's more of transitioning away from sport even more so in the sense that I, I'm all, I've always been one to like follow things that interest me and then go down deep rabbit holes on it. And I think as I've grown in age, my interests have, you know, broadened from being incredibly narrow on how do I run a faster mile time and how do I get people to run a faster mile time to the world is much bigger and maybe my skills can be used to a much better degree if I expand outside of this uh, very niche niche world i have i have two quick i have two quick like uh two quick piggyback thoughts so the first is if we're being totally honest steve and i basically just took steve's pretty sizable platform of diehard runners sold peak performance based on that platform wrote a book that has very little to do with running had enough runners buy it so bookstores started stocking it and then business people creatives artists started buying it and it just took off so thank you to the diehard runners that are still with us that kind of like really helped both of us do this thing that, that we now do that is so much broader than running. And then the second point is before we hit record, we were talking about Zainab Tefechki and we were all just admiring how like she has totally come into her prime as a public intellectual that's just crushing it. And Zainab is like a sociologist that one week is writing about the pandemic, the next week is writing about authoritarian rule, the week after that is writing about social media ecosystems, then she's teaching her class of undergrads at North Carolina on basic sociology. And we also talked about Dave Epstein, whose training is in geology, who was a hardcore sports reporter, wrote The Sports Gene, a book about sports, and his most recent big book is Range, which kind of has to do with sports, but is really a business and parenting book. So I think that, you know, for listeners out there, it's kind of to, to support what we talked about earlier with Fit and Grit. I think that hopefully we're, we're, we're more people come out is it's okay to explore your interests. Cal's certainly a great example of this and sample around. And yes, narrow super specialization is really important if you're trying to like unlock the RNA that's going to cure a virus. But for the kind of think work that we do, I would argue that having more experiences in diverse domains is actually really helpful. Yeah. Well, okay. So you're saying this is the wrong time to, to pitch Steve, my idea that we're going to write a book about my high school track experience and call it the 53 second principle, how to be kind of good, but not really that good at what you do. <laughs> we can, and we'll sell it to your list. <laughs> yeah. Even I say that if we're ever, if we're ever in a bind where we just need to make some money, we're totally doing like the eight principles of sport. Um, okay. But we're digressing a little bit too much here. So let's, 
pivot now to digital minimalism just for a second. For listeners that want to go deep on that book, we had Kale on the podcast a couple, uh, almost a year ago to talk about that. You should all just buy the book and read it because it's completely transformed how both Steve and I relate to our phones and all our devices. So you write Digital Minimalism, which is basically a book that says that, hey, these digital devices are encroaching on every corner of our life. And we're only thinking about the positives that they bring, but they also bring with them a whole bunch of negatives and we should be more deliberate. If I'm mistaken, or excuse me, correct me if I'm mistaken, but I believe that you had actually sold a world without email first, or at least you were going to write that book first. But two years ago, you felt that it was just so timely that you had to write digital minimalism. Is that right? Yeah, so that's right. I actually, I started working on a world without email immediately after Deep Work came out. In fact, because I was going through when I was working on the, the footnotes, a lot of the interviews in the beginning of a world without email, those were interviews conducted in 2016. So I had been working on that book for a while. It's sort of an epic, an epic book. And at some point, when I began to notice the trends in our culture, the trend towards a growing dissatisfaction with our devices, that seemed incredibly timely. Like this happened almost overnight. I, when I tried to date it, it was basically Donald Trump's election, but uh, up to and including the week when Donald Trump was elected, I was still getting raked over the coals for saying negative things about social media, including in some like very public places. And by 2017, it was uh entirely accepted. And there, so, so somewhere in that first year of Trump's presidency, there's this huge change where people began to actually think critically about tools like social media, their relationship with their phones. So I sold a world without email and digital minimalism together. And I had worked for a long time on a world without email. And I basically put it on pause, wrote digital minimalism, because I said, this is very timely, whereas the ideas in a world without email are so epic that no one was there. So nothing bad's going to happen if I put that book on pause for two years, because it's not a topic where anyone else is where I am on it. So I felt very confident putting that on hold and then returning to it uh, because the stuff in digital minimalism, everyone was writing about it. Everyone has written about it. It's huge topics. And I think getting it out when I did was very important, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, World Without Email is the, that was the the uh, the heir of di uh, deep work and a book that took me four or five years to actually pull it all together. Got it. All right, so then- this is perfect transition to now spending some time diving into a world without email, which, um, as I said in opening, was just such a good book. I've highlighted so many pages and the margins are all full of my notes. And we were thinking about the best inroads into this book. And what we both found really striking was this linkage to car manufacturing. So that's what we're going to go with. Can you tell us about car manufacturing at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, or I should more say like at the turn of the 19th century, and what does that have to do with email? So if you look at how they were building cars in the first decade or so of the 20th century, they were using something called the craft method, which is exactly how you would think this is how we should build a car if you were in the early 20th century, which was let's get some sawhorses and put a chassis on the sawhorses, and then we could have a team of craftsmen sit around that chassis and build a car on it. It's the same way that the very first commercial automobile was built in whoever it was, uh, uh, Benz's lab and uh, his craft shop in, in Germany. It was just scaled up. So if you wanted to scale up car manufacturing, you just bought more sawhorses, got more craftsmen team, and you just had a bunch of cars being built 
uh, in a large open space. So it was very convenient. It was very flexible, very natural. Henry Ford figured out there's probably a more effective way to do this. There's a lot of things that makes just a group of people building a car relatively slow. I think we can do faster. And it took them years of experimentation that I document. Let's try moving craftsmen from station to station. So there's like one wheel guy and he goes from station to station and just puts the wheels on the car. Let's have like a supply guy that just brings the stuff over. Let's put the supplies in the ceiling and have chutes and then we can uh, get rid of the time required to walk across the factory to get a, a bumper or whatever. It'll come down from the ceiling. And he was just ceaselessly experimenting, eventually ended up with the continuous motion assembly line. Now, what I emphasize is that the assembly line was a huge pain. It's not natural. It's not convenient. It's not flexible. They had to spend more money. They had to hire more managers. It was very hard to get right. Bad things happened at first when they were running the assembly line, because if you don't have it calibrated just right, the whole thing comes to a halt. So if you are a like a shareholder or a manager at the a Ford Motor Company, in, you know, whatever it was, 1910, you're probably like, this is crazy. Why This makes no sense. It's such a pain. Why are we doing this? But it produced Model T is 100x faster. And Ford became one of the largest companies in the in the world, and and Ford himself became one of the richest men in the world. I tell that story because there's a there's a there's a broad analogy here, which is when it comes to business, what's convenient, flexible, or easy is not necessarily the best way to do something. And in fact, to try to prioritize convenience, flexibility, or easiness as the properties you're trying to optimize when it comes to the world of business is probably a bad thing to do. What you're trying to optimize is, A, how do we produce the most value? And B, how do we keep, especially in the knowledge work sector, people from burning out? How do we get people satisfied? How do we keep people actually wanting to to, to work for us? You want to optimize those two things, and the answer is not always easy. So my argument in that book is the the way we've, we've defaulted to working in the modern world of knowledge work is this workflow I call the hyperactive hive mind, where we just figure things out on the fly with unscheduled back and forth messaging. That's the knowledge work equivalent of the craft method. It's easy, it's flexible, and it's convenient. But it is a really slow way to produce those proverbial Model Ts, and it has that added uh, negative aspect that people hate it. And so we need this sort of proverbial equivalent of a revolution in our way of working that may be a pain to figure out, but in the end, it's going to be much better for everyone than this sort of uh, least common denominator approach of collaboration that we're deploying right now. So one of the things that comes very, you know, is very clear throughout this book is that there's almost this balance between this autonomy and structure. And even going back to your own life where you said, you know, early on, you had a lot of autonomy, but you make this brilliant point that I want you to expand on in the book that says you need autonomy to do the work, but not in the process. What is that distinction? Yeah, autonomy is a huge player in understanding why we work the way we do. So, I, you know, I opened the book first, just really documenting science after science after science, uh, scientific studies showing that having a workflow in which you have to check an inbox once every six minutes where everything is just asynchronous back and forth messaging is just killer, right? I mean, it it makes it impossible to think clearly. It exhausts people's brains. It makes people miserable. It makes people anxious. It's probably holding down our uh, non-industrial productivity as an economic, uh, economic-wide factor is probably holding it down. I mean, it's a terrible way to work. So why are we doing it? Autonomy plays a big role. So one of the big storylines I excavated about the history of knowledge work, and the interested reader can also find, I wrote a big New Yorker piece about this recently too, called The Rise and Fall of Getting Things Done, which focuses just on this idea, is I excavated this notion that Peter Drucker, 
who really helped introduce the notion of knowledge work to the world. He actually coined the term knowledge work and helped people understand with decades of his writings about how to think about knowledge work. He was hitting the table preaching autonomy. Knowledge workers need autonomy. This is different than factory workers. Autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. There's no assembly line for writing ad copy. There's no assembly line for producing computer code. Knowledge workers need autonomy. And this was very, very influential. And so he introduced an alternative called management by objectives that said, what you need to do is give a knowledge worker crystal clear objectives, but then let them figure out how they're going to execute. This was the environment in which this otherwise cognitively catastrophic hyperactive hive mind could persist because we had a culture of knowledge work of it's not not my place as a manager, as an executive, as the owner of a company to tell other people how to organize and do their work. And so that's why this way of, of working stuck. My point is, however, what Drucker was trying to do was draw a distinction between industrial work and knowledge work, which was important, right? Uh, ad copy, computer programming. You're right. You can't break that down to an assembly line step. But we took this dependence on autonomy too far. And my argument is that you can and should leave the actual execution of skilled knowledge work to the practitioner to figure out how they do it. But everything that surrounds that execution, how we identify tasks, how we assign tasks, how we review tasks, how we coordinate to get the right information to you that you need to execute the task, that needs structure. And that needs top-down thinking, and that needs optimization. And that's where the autonomy trap was really sprung, is that instead of just letting people figure out how to do their actual skilled craft in their own way, we also let them figure out how they organize that work. And that's why we ended up stuck in the hive mind. So we can we have much better ways of organizing our work without touching how you actually execute it once it's time to execute. Yeah, the it's you know, it's the more constraints that you have in certain areas, the more free that you can be. And it's like one of these totally non-dual paradoxes where we think of freedom as full control over everything, but as a result of that, you actually lose the freedom to own your attention and do meaningful work because you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off from email to email, Slack to Slack, text message to text message, God knows what else. There's a quote in the book that I really like where you talk about um, optimizing processes, not people. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think the word optimize gets thrown around so often. It's very much about optimizing the individual. And you make this case that that's kind of backwards. Yeah, it's the problem with the hyperactive hive mind workflow. If that's your primary way of working, that we just figure things out informally with these back and forth messages, the only unit of optimization you have is the individual. We begin to think about people like these general purpose computer processors. Like I'm a general purpose computer processor that just executes tasks. And so what we want to do uh, like with a normal computer processor is keep as many tasks as possible feeding into this processor. So as much as much work as possible gets done. And then we start thinking about things like friction. Well, we really got to take friction out of communication. We really got to take friction out of getting information. We really got to make communication more ubiquitous, more easy. We got to get smartphones. We need worldwide high-speed wireless internet. We need to add AI to our email client so that we can send the emails even faster because it will auto-complete our sentences. That is a optimize the person type mindset. Like we got to get as much stuff to that processor as possible so that we can we can keep we can keep the uh, the buffer full. We can keep it executing steps. Turns out this is a terrible way to actually optimize attention capital because the human brain is not a computer processor. And for example, there is a huge cost when you take wetware and you take neurons and have it switch context. Like unlike a computer processor that doesn't care if those those electrons are 
uh, adding something to a register or jumping to a new place in, in memory doesn't care. Just execute, execute, execute. With the human brain, context matters. So if the whole brain is thinking about writing computer code and then you send it a message about a question from HR, it has to do this long, drawn-out context-switching process to inhibit some networks and amplify other networks. And it takes a long time to switch over uh, that has a cost. And then if we try to switch it back and we have a cost to switch back and our brain actually can't switch that much, we're not a computer processor. And so when you look for alternatives to the hyperactive hive mind, I say, and this is the big idea of the book, you're not going to solve anything in the inbox. You're not going to solve these overload problems with better tips, you know, like let's, let's check our email less or have email free Fridays. It's like, no, no, you got to go to the underlying processes and say, instead of implementing these things with the hyperactive hive mind, we're going to put explicitly stated alternatives in place that don't require so much unscheduled back and forth messaging. The way you solve the overload problem, again, is not tips. It's actually changing the underlying processes so there's the pressure's not there in the inbox in the first place. Optimizing these processes to reduce the cognitive load, to reduce the need to do asynchronous back and forth messaging, that's where the real wins are. And I think we have not been doing that. All we have been doing throughout the history of digital knowledge work is say, how do we make get more information to people? get more tasks to people, let people execute these tasks faster. Uh, it's, it's entirely the wrong metaphor if you want to optimize the return you get from this attention capital. Yeah, two related points that, I, again, I wrote down in the margins of the book there because this this really, in, in a way, blew my mind the both um, narrowness of this principle and how precise it is, but also how broad it can be. So first, on the more narrow side, in, in a work context, something that Steve and I have written about a ton is how burnout is just so clearly simplified as you're working too many hours. But we've done all this informal research. And if someone works a 10-hour day where they're doing like deep blocks of meaningful work, they don't feel burnt out at all. They feel energized. And they say, let me work two more hours. And where we come down is as long as you're sleeping like seven to eight hours a night and doing some, you know, basic hygiene, if you love your job and it's meaningful, do it. Where people burn out is spending 10 hours a day doing this kind of context switching nonstop that you talk about. Those are two very different 10 hour days. And I think a big contribution of this book is hopefully it continues to shift the conversation around burnout from just working too many hours to actually it's less about the sheer quantity of hours and, and more about what you're doing in those hours. And then the second thing I wanted to point out, which again is now like the broad application, is I think this is so true on the individual level, right? So you hear the word like optimal and optimize for just day-to-day -day life for humans, whether it's self-improvement, nutrition, diet. And it's so often actually not the person that needs to optimize in that moment. It's either at the cultural level like the, 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 we need more sidewalks, we need more access to good food, we need more community and belonging, or even at the personal level. I think that as an individual, you could read Cal's Newton book very clearly from a work standpoint, but you could also say, hey, in my own life, if I'm unhappy or if I'm feeling groggy or if I'm, you know, whatever it is that, that you feel like you need to optimize, don't look downstream at that thing in particular. Look at the processes in your life and start working on those. Um, so I think you really hit on something that, again, is both narrow and precise, but also extremely broad. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right to point out that the poison here that we're trying not to ingest is context switching. 
And that, that's like the first chapter of the book is just pulling together all of these different threads of science from all these different fields that underscores that context switching is something that's very expensive. And when you do too much of it, it is really a problem. You know, it really is a problem. In the business world, we all have this experience where you keep having to check your inbox and you feel that mental exhaustion grow. And then eventually you just give up and just sort of stay in your inbox and just try to surf the fine messages that are easier to answer. That's 100% context switching exhaustion, right? You just tired out your brain. All of that trying to look at all these different emails, all different contexts while still trying to write your computer code or still trying to write your memo or still trying to write your book. All that context switching just tired it out. Your brain taps. It's like, no, I'm done. I'm out, right? It's not that the work was so hard, right? It is that you did too much context switching. The same thing, I, you know, I hadn't thought about this as much before, but Brad, I think it's a great point that when you think about your optimizing, quote unquote, in your personal life, it's the same issue. Like, what's your goal when you're optimizing parts in your personal life? It should not be, oh, I'm trying to make this more automated and more efficient so I can do more things. No, it's so I can minimize context shifting. I want to try to reduce the number of things in my life that I'm going to have to like switch my attention to and give some of my limited energy to. So if there's a way I can, you know, uh, automate the household chores, I can automate various tasks we have to do all the time. So I don't have to think much about it. The victory there is not, oh, now I could do more of those things. The victory there is now context shifting less. I will be less mentally exhausted and I can spend more time on a fewer number of things I really like, which is partially why I think, for example, hiking out of nature. We know that gives people, at least anecdotally, there's some research, there's some issues with the research, but I think intuitively we all have this, this experience that going for log walks in nature can be uh, energizing. And there's this interesting research out of Ann Arbor that, again, it's not super replicatable, but basically if you do similar walks, but in a more complicated urban environment where you have to navigate stoplights and crosswalks and, and traffic, uh, people don't get the same restoration. Well, you know, a big part of that is probably when you're in nature, you're you're going for a long time without context shifting. You could just, here's the world around me. It's trees. It's a trail. I'm thinking my thoughts. Whereas if you're walking in a crowded urban environment, you have to keep switch over here. Oh, there's a car coming. I got to think about the stoplight. What's going on over here? And you're feeling the exhaustion from the context switching. So I I I I love that frame. Just like we now think about like refined sugar as bad. We think about sleep deprivation as bad. We, we've learned that smoking is very bad. I would love if we could inject that new thought into people's minds that context shifting done to excess is also really bad for your psychological health. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, we could go down so many tangents, but it's 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 interesting, and you do this really well in the book too. But like, it's the bringing together of these different fields because you sit here and you say, you know, you're talking about context switching and this stuff, and my mind just goes to fatigue. Like, it's all just a different variation of fatiguing ourselves, and of course, like we can't handle it, and of course, the problem isn't like. Oh, I I just need to, you know, get stronger, tougher at like dealing with emails. It's no, this thing is the fatiguing mechanism. So we have to like in my world of sport, it would be like, no, we need to stop doing this type of workout or change change that variable if that analogy makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah, it, it'd almost be like if you're you're training for a sport, but your training center was at the at the top of like a really high hill with, you know, 150 steps you had to climb to get up there. And you're like, I just don't, I want to do these interval runs or I'm working on my hurdle form or something like that, but I'm so exhausted, right? Because I have to, oh, and also like, we need you to carry sandbags up the stairs because we need it for whatever, right? I mean, it's a strained analogy, but it's kind of similar. It's like, well, 
um, I'm exhausting myself with activity that's not directly related to what matters. And in sport, we'd be like, oh, of course that's a problem. Like, let's get rid of that. In knowledge work, because of this autonomy issue and some other issues, we just keep piling the sandbags on people's shoulders. And I do basically the equivalent of putting motivational posters up along the staircase. (laughs) This should solve it. Like, let's give people incentives and motivation. You can do it. Work harder. Here's your objectives. Not realizing that this is a terrible way to try to actually accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It just popped into my head because there's a lot. There's actually some pretty good research on it. But if I'm going to run, we'll say a 400 meter race or 800 meter race, I'm not going to sit down and take the SAT right before that and then hop out onto the track and try and do it. Because if you look at research, like just that mental fatigue will impact your physical performance. Yet in the workspace, we do that all the time with, okay, I'm going to, uh, first thing I get to the office in the morning, I'm going to spend, you know, all this time going through all these different email chains and then, um, then bounce back and forth between things and and go out and then try and do some deep work. You know, it would be equivalent to, again, I'm straining the analogies here, but it would be equivalent if, you know, and we're running intervals and I am giving you a uh, calculus textbook in between on your rest interval and you're switching back and forth between that. Of course, your performance would plummet and would be a, a horrible idea. No one would do that. But in the knowledge, uh, field we just take it for granted yeah and 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 not to be a broken record but part of the problem is is that we think the solution is just telling the individual like well you're weak why are you checking your email so much but the point is if that is the primary mechanism by which your organization collaborates if the hyperactive hive mind is the only game in town you have no choice and so i keep coming back to this that the solution to this is to replace the hive mind we got to get below the inbox and say no 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 we're not just going to rock and roll an email we are going to figure out process by process what's a better way of doing it and even if you have no control over this your boss hates cal newport uh they 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 want nothing to do with any of this type of innovations even if you're just taking the processes you are implicitly involved in and asymmetrically optimizing them given just what you can control how can you minimize the amount of back and forth messaging required to accomplish these goals it makes a huge difference, right? So it's like, if that calculus has to be done, uh, find a find a new solution where, well, we do the calculus after the meet or whatever, right? You know, it's it's you need to replace the processes. We can't solve this problem with better inbox habits. It's not a failure of will. It's not a laziness on behalf of the of the of the employee because they they have to go back to the inbox if that's where all this is happening. So we have to have a better way to do this collaboration that doesn't require just let me just shoot Steve a message and he'll shoot me one back. Yeah. I want to read a quote as we transition into what are some of the things that people can do about it um, that really resonated because in my executive coaching practice, I work with people struggling with this so frequently. And you write that email, email overload has recently advanced into a much more serious problem. Reaching a, reaching a saturation point for many in which their actual productive output gets squeezed into the early morning or evenings and weekends, while their workdays devolve into a Sisyphusian battle against their inbox, a uniquely misery-inducing approach to getting things done. I can't tell you how often I come across people that basically say that I need to do all my deep thinking in my 15-minute commute to work. And the actual time I spend doing the work is after I put my kids to bed between 8 and 10. So 
so much of that is driven by, I think, two things. One is meeting overload and another is email overload. So what are some things that you can do at the organizational level? And then also, as you said, what about at the individual level? If your boss is like, screw this Cal Newport guy, he's going to make me think hard and change and I don't want to think hard and change. Um, And obviously, it goes without saying, if y'all are listening, you should read the book. We're time bound here, so we're not going to get into all of the great practices that Cal recommends. Um, But if you could offer just a couple, perhaps, again, hitting it both the you're the boss that actually is open-minded and you want to change some stuff organizationally, or you're the person with the asshole boss, but you just are like drowning and you need some help. Well, I mean, first of all, we should reflect on just the absurdity of this situation. I, I think viewed with any objectivity, this idea that we have made checking messages and talking about work take up so much time that it now takes up the entire workday is like a Kafka play. It's absurd. It, it's like absurd on an almost theatrical level of like, oh, we, 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 we dare you to point out how crazy this is that now all you do is talk about the work. We've gotten rid of all time in which you can actually do the work, right? I mean, it's like an absurdist play. And, and yet we're kind of just used to it. Like, well, of course, like you work after your kids go to bed. Like how else, how else would we do that? We need to be on zoom all day. So I, I just want to underscore the absurdity of where we are. And the fact that we're not all screaming about this more uh, is a big deal. Yeah. So what are concrete practices? Well, again, the framework here is replace the hive mind with processes. And the thing to optimize with these processes is reducing unscheduled back and forth messaging. That's what creates the context shift. That's what creates the pressure to have to keep checking the inboxes. So I don't care, for example, about the total number of emails in your inbox. Like if you subscribe to a thousand email newsletter, it doesn't bother me. The thing that bothers me is if there's many back and forth conversations going on because that's what forces you to have to tend the channel at all times that there's 13 conversations in seven of them the ping pong ball has been hit back against the net to me and now the pressure is on that i have to pong it back again as quickly as possible because this is how decisions are being made that's the killer so that's what you're trying to optimize not convenience not time not flexibility how do we reduce the back and forth and there's a bunch of different principles i give in the book that that characterize different flavors of these type of solutions, but I'll give a couple of really quick concrete examples. Some of them are really simple and technologically based. Like a very common problem that creates a lot of back and forth messages is meeting scheduling. Most jobs, there's just things that pop up where people have to set up a meeting. By simply saying my meeting scheduling process is now going to use a tool like Calendly or Schedule Once or Acuity, where I can just respond and say, this has all of my available times because I know you're busy. So you can just choose the one that works best for you. That's a one message meeting scheduling. You've reduced probably five or six on average back and forth messages, which in turn will maybe generate 10 email checks per message because you have to be on the conversation. So you've just saved 70 messages per week with that simple process. Some are more complex, right? So when we when you have a team that's working on a project, a project that's not replicatable, like it's, if a project is very replicatable, like producing a podcast episode, I talk about how you can really automate this. Like, here's the workflow. We don't have to send messages back and forth. We can, you know, this file goes to this Dropbox. I update this spreadsheet. The editor takes it. You know, that you should and can automate. But what is, let's say you're working on a project where you've never done it before. I talk about in the book, for example, the use of task boards. We say, okay, here's a task board shared by everyone who's working on this project. 
everything that needs to be done or has been done is on this board, on a card. All of the files, all the information, all the relevant correspondence is attached to these virtual cards. The columns have their statuses. We see exactly who's working on what and what the status is. And then maybe we have a very highly structured, regularly occurring real-time status meeting where it's, okay, who's working on what? What do you need? Go. And you have now, uh, I detail this example after example in the book, you can now tackle these projects that might have typically generated several hundred email messages, back and forth conversations, and execute them with basically zero. Because everything's transparent. We know who's working on what. We have a highly structured way of checking in and updating who's working on what. Uh, and so you have a wide array of what these solutions look like. Office hours is another sort of smaller solution that's semi-non-technological. Set times, I'm available. So you can defer anything that requires some conversation to figure out. You can just automatically defer. Grab me at my office hours, we'll talk about it. Grab me at my office hours, we'll talk about it. And now you've taken things that are inappropriate for figuring out on email because they'll generate a dozen back and forth. And in these two one-hour chunks each week, they all get handled. All of these things have in common the same objective. Back and forth, unscheduled messaging, push it down, push it down, push it down. And as you reduce that metric and process after process, you are going to feel the ability to actually work that's going to blossom to do one thing at a time and spend some time on it. That's really the key. Yeah. So the, the other thing that I would then add is what do you say to the person? And this gets maybe to some of the individual principles that says, okay, all of that is good and well, but I can't schedule office hours because my boss is going to be like, what do you mean office hours? And the office that I'm working with, okay, I use Calendly, but no one else really does. And people are still sending me stuff. So, or even just the freelancer, like what are some very individual concrete tips? Is it you, do you want to batch process your emails? Is it that you just stop responding to certain people because so much of the swirl we create on our own? That's what well, Steve's point himself. That's what Steve does. He never responds to my emails. Yeah, well, that might be more about a, a personal issue there. So <laughs> I think that's outside of my scope. Um, asymmetric process optimization also generates really big benefits. So you say, I, I have no control over what other people do, but I look at all the processes I'm involved in and say, what can I do? And you'd be surprised by, by how much improvement that can make. So, uh, for example, some of this is just social engineering. So you want to use something like Calendly, uh, but there's a social dynamic that may, makes it difficult because uh, your boss might be like, what? You have to reframe it into a way that actually makes it seem like you're uh, you're doing more work on their behalf. Like, I know you're so busy. Uh, your schedule is busier than mine. So here's what I, I put just every time I'm available in here. So you can just, you can pick by far whatever works the best for your busy schedule, right? Or, and I've seen this hack, if something about clicking that link throws off your boss, uh, you keep these times in a Google Doc and you paste them into the doc. You're like, here's a bunch of times I'm available coming up. Choose any one that works for you. You're basically just implementing Calendly by copy and pasting into a Google Doc. You're like, oh, it takes a little bit more time in the moment to copy that in, but you've avoided back and forth, which is crucial. Sometimes you can recruit people into these processes. Just don't call them a process, right? You just tell them like, oh, look, okay, uh, here's how I think we should, we have to do this report together. Uh, here's what I suggest. I'll have a draft put into uh, the Dropbox we're using by by Monday at noon. Take a look. Put your comments right there on the draft because I then have uh, time put aside Tuesday afternoon where I'm going to take that and I'll uh, I'll integrate your comments and 
uh, and then I'll put it back in the Dropbox. And and the and the uh, the designer CC'd on this conversation. You're like, and the designer, so you can COB Tuesday, whatever you find that Dropbox, you can take it. Technically, you're pinging all these people into a process that's getting this thing put together without back and forth messages, but they don't know that, and they're just happy that like, great, sounds like a plan. I'm glad I don't have to think about that. Which which comes to the more general point here, which is often when it comes to things like clients or vendors or your bosses, having clarity is really going to trump uh, accessibility. You know, we think what they want is accessibility. They can reach me at any time and I'm going to answer them. And that's really crucial. But the real reason why they're trying to reach you and really demand big answers is because there's not a lot of clarity and they don't really trust that the work is going to get done. And they're worried about something and they're not very organized and they don't want to have to remember oh, I'm worried about this thing that, you know, uh, Brad's working on. Uh, I'll get back to that later. They're like, no, let me just get this question answered now. And I'm going to have to think about this as an open loop until I hear your response. So I want quick responses. But if there's clarity, oh, here's how we work together. Here's how we keep track of things. We have these very clear structures for how we meet and, and document who's working on what and where things are. Now, suddenly, like, it's fine. Great. Now I don't have to worry about things. And so I have case after case of that in the book where it's, uh, People very worried their clients were going to get upset when they reduced accessibility, but because they replaced it with clarity, the clients were happier than before. So there's a lot you can do on your own. And that's probably where people have to start because it's going to take a while for everyone to buy and read my book, at which point, of course, the problem will be solved. But, you know, we're going to have a few hard months before that happens. So we'll we'll have to focus on individual stuff. So what you're saying is that Steve needs to respond to my emails more swiftly and give me more clarity in our partnership. That is a perfect place to end the podcast. I I think what he's actually saying is that I shouldn't respond. And I've given you the clarity that I'm just not going to respond to them, Brad. So we're very clear on this. So stop sending me emails. Yeah. And and if you would, I think if you sent less of those shirtless email, those pictures of yourself with no shirt, Brad, I think that would probably help the responsivity rate. I think at some point there's only so much, (laughs) only so many of those flexing, those flexing shots you're sending that we can, uh, that we're going to answer. I don't know why everyone thinks I'm so fit. I'm not at all fit. Um, but those are the only emails that Steve opens, but anyways, I digress. So listeners, we hope that you enjoy the conversation. Um, we love Cal. I'd say that this has been wonderful for us. I've learned a lot. I always do. Two action items. The first is to get Cal's book, A World Without Email. It really is just a masterful work. We've only touched the tip of the iceberg. It is structured in a super accessible way where the first half of the book is what I like to call um, more intellectual reading, where we really go into the history of how we got here. As Cal mentioned, he goes deep on the similarities between car manufacturing and where we were at with industrial work is mirroring where we're at with knowledge work today. And then the back half of the book takes you into very concrete practices. Um, So it's kind of a lot of books are thought of as are they purely service books or are they purely think books? And Cal has really merged the two. and, And I think part of what makes this book so wonderful. So get a world without email. It just came out yesterday. It's on sale wherever books are sold. And then the second thing is... If you are continuing to enjoy the podcast, please check out our Patreon page, www.patreon slash the growth equation. We are giving away, I guess we're not giving away, but if you become a patron, you get all kinds of neat exclusive things such as signed copies of our books, a live quarterly mastermind book, and excuse me, a live quarterly mastermind group, 
in a monthly book club where we wouldn't be surprised if we're going to be reading Kel's book in a little while and discussing with each other. Um, So please check that out. And other than that, happy reading, happy thinking, and happy time away from your inbox. So thank you so much, Kel. We really appreciate you making time to come on the show and your contributions um, to the world. Thank you. Always, uh, always a pleasure to do it. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.